Uh, if you were around earlier this year, you would have seen this movie. I'm sure you would have seen this movie. At least seen it advertised. Who actually went to watch Avengers Infinity War? Really? Really? Is that all? Well, I'm going to ruin it for you right now. Earlier this year, Avengers, the Avengers movie came out and it was great. Right? There's a big group of us that went uh, to watch it together. You might not be following any of the Avengers movies, but in a nutshell, you have a group of superheroes trying to save the world. Right? That's what they do every movie. And in this movie, particularly, you've got a guy that died at the very front there called Thanos. He's the bad guy in the movie. Basically, he goes from galaxy to galaxy, leaving a trail of destruction behind him. Right? Thanos, he's on a mission to obtain all the Infinity Stones. These are just these magical stones, essentially, that will give him enormous power. Enough power to literally wipe out half of the universe at the click of his hand. That is his mission. Why is that his aim? He believes that the universe needs to be kept in check, that there's only a limited amount of natural resources to be provided for the whole universe, so to stop its extinction, in his mind, it's mercy. It'd be better off just to wipe out half the universe instead. Right? For him, it was an act of mercy. For him, it was an opportunity to reset, really, press reset on the life of the universe. It was simple, fair, but very brutal. Now, I find that really interesting, isn't it? Because what the film wanted to do was to give Thanos, the, the villain in the movie, a, a conscience. Even though he was a bad guy, there was a motivation given to him that we could actually understand why he did it. Have you ever read news and just wish that you could hit the reset button? And what is it for you? The, the senseless murder, perhaps? The corruption? The abuse of our government? Abuse of animals or, or refugees? Have you ever grieved the tragedy of wars? human trafficking, terrorism, horrific acts that have wiped out entire generations and, and continue to, to this day. Have you ever wished you could just press reset and put a stop to the brokenness in this world? Now I wonder, is there a bit of Thanos in all of us? Maybe that's what the movie was trying to, to show us. And yet while we can understand Thanos' motivations, he's, he's still depicted as a tyrant, right? Even if the world was on the brink of extinction, why should he be the judge of who gets to live and who dies? He's a villain who wants to satisfy his thirst for infinite power and revels in destruction and death. He doesn't have the capacity for love and he has no remorse for his actions. And I reflected on this, on this movie, I reflected on Thanos in particular. And you can understand it. Uh, because when you read God in the Flood, you can see how do people see God? He brings the flood, he wipes out the entire world, all of life, and he presses reset, doesn't he? What do you think about this? Is God's judgment a fair call? Or is he like Thanos, a nasty tyrant, a villain? Some of you might, might, some of you might have grown up in church and you heard about Noah's Ark as a young child. Uh, you know, colouring in sheets, you, you get to colour in a happy picture of Noah on a boat with all these beautiful animals around him, and you, that's your exercise for Sunday school, right? I've, um, I've got a puzzle at home, I didn't get to bring it today, but it was an, a, a thousand piece puzzle that was of Noah's Ark, that I don't know why we have it, me and Heidi did it on one of our first dates, it took us six hours straight. Uh, it was a traumatic experience for Heidi, but also for my back. But it, it was, it's this beautiful portrait of this, this puzzle with all these colours, Noah, and all these animals around getting onto this ark, and there was dinosaurs in the corner, and there was like you know, lions and tigers, all just there getting onto this ark. It's this beautiful 1,000 piece puzzle. 
But it's interesting, isn't it? Because all these, the Sunday school coloring in, the, the cute puzzles, they don't even want to, they don't even really factor in God. The idea of God who judges a flood, killing everyone, isn't really something they want to teach to our children, to our kids. So how should we as a church, how should we understand the God of the Bible? The God who does bring a flood that wipes out humanity. And that's what we're going to hopefully discover in today's Bible passage that we've got in Genesis. Uh, I did say to some of our guys here to, to have a paper Bible with you. It's a bit, bit easier to read because we're going to be actually going through not just chapter um, not through just chapter 6 here, the one that Megan read, but we're actually going to go all the way up to chapter 9, so I'm going to be referencing some of the other verses. Um, but I'm going to outline four things, just to make it easier for you to follow. Firstly, we're going to look at the state of humanity. Secondly, we're going to look at God's heart. Thirdly, we're going to look at God's judgment. And lastly, God's grace in judgment. Right? So those are the four things we're going to look at, and I'll come back to that. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at the issue of sin. We looked at how it severed the good relationship we have with God. That was, that was how it was designed. Last week, we also saw how that severs the good relationships we have with one another. That's why there's brokenness in the world. That's why there's often disunity. It's evident in our relationships. It's evident in our hearts from, from birth. Because of sin, our natural inclination is not to choose, not to acknowledge God as Creator and Lord, but instead in our, in our pride, in our self-centeredness, seek out our own identity without Him. Right? So if you missed out on those talks, go online. It's on our website. Sin happens in our world. And it starts here in Genesis. And that's how we begin our passage today in chapter 6, verse 5. So if you're following along, this is what it says. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You see, the first thing we need to understand, we're just going to stop on that one verse. Before we understand anything, we need to see God's response. Before we see God's response, we need to understand why did God flood the earth. See, the people in our story aren't, they're not doing great, are they? You could say they're doing terribly. We don't like talking about sin. We don't like talking about the extent of the, the jealousy, lust, greediness of our own hearts. We generally don't, don't want to identify ourselves or others as bad people. People get offended, I get it. But what if sin is more than just being bad? Like I said, what if sin is an outright rejection of God in our words? in our hearts and, and maybe then in our actions. In this generation in the Bible here in chapter 6, we're talking about an entire generation of people who are acting upon every sinful desire. Now, if God, right, if God is God, He's the source of all good, right, then this generation is everything but that. If this generation is wicked and sinful, they're everything but what God is, good. Now, this might be hard to imagine. You look around our world today, don't you, and we see instances of good, don't we? We see acts of heroism. We see people doing things out of, uh, out of the kindness of their hearts. I don't know if you read on the news a couple of months ago, you saw Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, he ran down the road and, and stopped a guy from robbing a cyclist. Like, that, that's, what, a, what a man, what a hero. And we love seeing him, hearing those stories. And we see good in this world, people standing up for social justice. There's a lot of good in our world. But even though we're all human, we all do know that no one is perfect, don't we? We do know that there is still sin. Sin exists. It's in our humanity. Imagine all the bad that we see in our world then. All the evil and the wrong. What if that was amplified? Amplified to the point that all of humanity, that all the evil that, that we know was actually being done by everyone. That there was essentially chaos in humanity. 
that the idea of doing good was completely absurd or foreign or unknown to them because sin had gone to a point where it ruled, where it mastered over every member of society, where every evil deed, every act of selfishness or corruption, violence or greed, abuse, rape, had no restraints, had no boundaries, had no laws, and without any sense of morality or human rights, the world had become that wicked. That's the setting of the ancient world here in Genesis 6 that we're told about. We begin with that context, don't we? This is the tragic world that God has to look upon, that God has wonderfully created, that was originally good. That was what we heard about in the last, in previous talks. Chapter 1, right, of Genesis, it's all about a good creation. God created in his sovereign and majestic power, he created and he saw that it was good. And now everything has been completely turned upside down. What was intended to be good, sin had just eaten it up and caused evil and chaos instead. The first thing we need to acknowledge is this, the wickedness of humanity is so very great that the human heart is full of evil continually. Right? So that's the setting. From verse 6, let's keep going. We're going to look at God's heart. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. So we need to understand something here. God is expressed here as someone who has feelings, emotions. Some of you guys don't have those, but you know it's one of those things that he's hurt right now. And the author uses these emotions and feelings to describe God in the opening verses because he wants humans to know that God cares for his humanity and creation. When I say people, I say, I'm talking about myself, I don't always understand emotions. But let's be clear, right? God does know everything. He's not changing his mind here. We're told in other places that he has everything planned out from the beginning of time itself. But the language here, think about it. It sounds, it's, it's, it sounds like God is a, a God who cares, doesn't it? It's not, he's not surprised by it. He knew this was going to happen. He's in shock. But he's using the, the writer for Genesis, is using emotions to describe how God feels because he wants us to know that God loves, God cares. He really grieves the sin of humanity. And so these human emotions here of regret, of deeply troubled, that's to help us understand how God is feeling about sin. These human emotions that are described an infinite, all-powerful God. And it shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, how would you feel if everything you create is about to self-destruct? Everything you create is about to self-destruct. It's going down a pathway of death and eternal separation from you. God is not only king of the universe, but he's also the father of creation, isn't he? He sees the very thing he loves and created in a place that is far from what he intended, what he created them to be. They're not flourishing as humanity should be. And so the writer for us writes these feelings. These, he wants us to feel God's emotions. He feels bad, sad reacts. He's deeply troubled. It's not like, it's, he, didn't know he, it's not like he didn't know he cares, though. He really cares about how this world runs. So he looks at the destructive, chaotic behavior of the human race, and he grieves. Wouldn't we want to press reset too? I was thinking about another movie. Um, recently, some of you guys might have watched the Jurassic World movie. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But the idea of Jurassic Park, right, is how humans created dinosaurs that were meant to be extinct, right, from, uh, from cloning. And although the dinosaurs are majestic, grand creatures, 
Dinosaurs and humans can't coexist together, right? That's the whole point of the movie. They can't coexist together. And so the creators of those dinosaurs have regret. They wish they never made them because they've caused more harm than good. And it's so interesting because while we, well, people think God just snapped his fingers like Thanos and didn't care, God did. That's the context for us. God cared. He grieved. We're told he's deeply troubled. He wasn't happy that he had to do this. That judgment is something that he doesn't take delight in. But he has to because of wickedness. Because of evil. He had to. And remember, God is a perfectly holy God. He wants to be in relationship with us. But sin separates us from him. Another thing that we need to take note of is, actually, we don't know how long this has been that sin has been going unchecked. And we, it's three chapters in our Bibles, from Adam and Eve when they sinned to now in chapter 6. But there could have been thousands of years between that. God has been patient with his creation. But ultimately, it comes to a point where perfect holiness can't be in the presence of sin. We're told that sin is rampant. It's every, the creation is consumed by it. This wasn't how it was meant to be. And so we see God's heart grieving. We see God make a call. We see God pressing reset. He's reversing everything that he created for the sake of future generations. It's so fascinating how it's written for us. Remember back at creation, how did it begin? Before the land, before the creatures on the land were created, where was, what, was on the, what was on the earth? It was just water, wasn't it? It began with water. Opening verses of chapter 1, if you, if you read it later, you can see that. It's just water at the beginning. There was waters in the heavens and there was water on the earth. And what God is doing right now, isn't that fascinating? He's making this call to reverse creation. And in the process, take away the sin of humanity. That, kind of, that takes us to our third point. We heard that the sin of humanity has spiraled out of control. We heard that God, God's heart grieves over creation. And now we come to the main point of our narrative. God brings judgment. He brings it in the form of water. A reversal of creation. And so we're going to cover a couple of chapters here, but hopefully you can follow along with me. Let's just look at chapter 6, verse 17, because we're still in chapter 6. It says this, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth. I'm going to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Flip over to chapter 7. It happens and it's described from verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21. It says this, Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 years. Now our children in churches are doing colouring pictures of Noah and all the animals. There's this picture in the chapter that's repeated. Everything on earth will perish. Everything will be destroyed. Everything will be wiped out. You see, this, this is actually a picture of judgment. And it's absolutely devastating. This isn't some cute and fuzzy picture at all, is it? Chaos. Imagine chaos has come. Tsunamis hitting every coastal city. Rains flooding every town and village. People drowning. Every creature dying. That picture should terrify us. But we read the context. It's a judgment that's actually deserving. A judgment that has to come because of justice. Because God can't let the injustice and the wickedness and impurity of humankind keep going. 
Now, before I go on, before we hear more about this story about the flood, I know what many of you are thinking. It sounds so unreal, doesn't it? It sounds like a legend, a myth. It was told maybe to, to get little kids to be obedient, to scare them. But I want us to actually believe that this is a true story. Why? Well, one of the first things I want us to know is actually there are cultures all over the world who believe that there was once a great worldwide flood that happened in history. It's not just the ancient Hebrew culture that we read here in Genesis, but there are other ancient Near East cultures like the Babylonians. They write about in their stories that there was a worldwide flood. The Hindu scriptures, the even Chinese, the Greek Romans, the Native Americans, South Americans, even indigenous Australians, all have stories that speak about a worldwide or great flood that devastated the world. Now that's really interesting in itself, isn't it? Now some people might want to read this text here in chapter 6 to 8, and they want to argue that this flood here, worldwide, means the world as they know it in that day, so it could just be a regional, local flood in that area, that region that was world, the world to them. And that's fine, whatever it is. The context, though, there's something still there about the context, there's still, still something there about the cultures around the world who know about this flood too, so that's something you've got to think about as well. Whether it's local or worldwide, the point is, God flooded. Yeah, doesn't it? That's still the point, isn't it? And still real, it's still something that has happened. Secondly, as we read through the Bible, which uh, we'll get to in a moment, thousands of years later, people like Jesus, people like Peter, that make mention of this great flood of judgment. That was thousands of years later after Noah. People like Jesus and Paul came along, Peter came along, and they talked about this great flood. They were real stories that were passed down generation by generation and widely accepted across many cultures. You've got to consider that, right? You've got to at least give it some consideration that there is maybe some validity to this, that a lot of the earth, animals and humanity, were destroyed in a worldwide flood. So our story begins with... Let's go back to this text. Our story begins with creation with sin and judgment. After 150 days pass, God stops the rain and floods, and after another 150 days, we're told... In chapter 8, the waters subsides, right? Noah sends out a dove. You know the story? He sends out a dove to find dry ground, and eventually we're told Noah and the ark, the boat, land on top of Mount Ararat. Go with me to chapter 9, verse 1. We're told this. God blessed Noah and his sons, chapter 9, verse 1, and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You've heard that before, haven't you? Right? Go out, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. That's from chapter 1. Can you see what God has just done in his judgment upon the earth? He's reversed creation. He brought the waters to fill the earth and he's press reset. He's resetting with the second Adam, in a sense, Noah. And he tells Noah then to do what Adam was called to do. Go out, multiply, fill the earth. And what we read through chapter 9, which we're not going to read in depth, but we see God make a promise to Noah to never again flood the whole world. He makes a promise to humankind that he wouldn't destroy with water. Why? Because humans would never sin again? We know that's not true, is it? So far in the narrative, we've only looked at God. I've only focused on God. Have you noticed that? God's view of sin, God's love for his creation, God's judgment. Remember our story. Remember our story of humanity and our world. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. But amongst God's judgment and the flood, we're told of a man in the story and his family, that they're rescued. This is the fourth thing I want us to glean from these chapters in the flood. There is hope for humanity in God's grace, right? Even in this misery of the state of the world, there was a glimmer of hope. God chose a man to recreate with. Chapter 6, verse 8, back to chapter 6. 
nor found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Right? This is the account of Noah and his uh, family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. There's a glimmer of hope in this one man. Righteous, blameless, walked faithfully. Right? That turns to describe a person who believes in God, who knows and trusts that God is good all the time. Here's the thing. Noah wasn't sinless. Just because he's described as righteous, blameless, and all faithfully, he wasn't sinless. Right? Just a few verses before, in verse 5, we're told that every intention, every thought of the human heart was only evil continually. That was the state of humanity. Even Noah would have had sin. He, was, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfectly holy. He was righteous because he sought out God in his life. Who He hates sin. He turns away from sin. He trusts God. He pursues obedience and enjoys a relationship with God. But he isn't sinless. He just looked a bit better than everyone else in the crowd. And like the rest, he didn't deserve to be rescued either. What we're told is he found favor in the eyes of God. What does that mean? That idea of favor is that God showed him grace. God gave him a free gift. It's interesting, isn't it? God knows that all humanity have a sin issue. Noah isn't an exception. If you read on through chapter 9, it's really interesting. He gets drunk and lies naked in his tent and his sons find him. Noah isn't perfect. But what happens after the flood? In chapter 8, verse 20, it says this, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took every clean animal of every clean bird and offered uh, burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled that pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response to this pure sacrifice. You guys following me so far? This is hard stuff, right? But think about it. God promises not to flood the world again. Why? Humans will sin again. Every inclination of the human heart is evil, but why does he make this covenant with Noah here? This promise. Because this idea of a sacrifice actually points us towards a greater sacrifice, doesn't it? God has a rescue plan. He initiates his own rescue plan for humanity. Not to just save one man and his family, but a rescue plan that could save all of humanity from sin and evil. If we walked away from this flood narrative, this flood story, and just said, we need to be good boys and girls like Noah was, then we're missing the point entirely, aren't we? The flood narrative isn't so much about Noah and, and his family, but it's all about God. This sacrifice in God's promise to Noah to not flood the earth again, that's a foreshadowing. God brings the remedy to sin, not through humanity just improving in their morality, being good people, Right? Because we're never going to be perfect. Sin will still rule our hearts. No matter how much education, good deeds, only God can save us. And God does. He brings the greatest sacrifice. We know that. He brings it in His one and only Son, Jesus. You see, the flood narrative, even though a lot of us are terrified of explaining this to our friends, the flood narrative is actually so important for us. Why? Because our world has not yet been made perfect. God brought this recreation through the flood, but he hasn't yet brought the new heavens and the new earth, right? We still in a, live in a world that is still imperfect. There still is sin. Sin has still stained our world. But there is a world to come, the heavens to come, that will be truly perfect. 
right now we still have to deal with brokenness, don't we? I mean, there is brokenness everywhere. I feel it when I drop my phone and the screen cracks. But I'm not even talking about that brokenness. I'm talking about the brokenness of our, of our relationships, our relationship with God, the relationships with one another. We feel the disunity. We hate the division. We hate hating people. We hate the brokenness in our own hearts, our selfishness, our greed, our impatience. No one likes that stuff about ourselves. We wish we didn't have that, that arrogance, that, that rudeness, that pride. None of us are perfect. And none of us in this room can say we're perfect people. Why? Because sin still exists in this world. And the things we learn about God hasn't changed either. He grieves over sin. He sees the humanity he created and the hurt and pain in our world. And his heart is still deeply troubled and is grieving over it. Justice has come. Justice in the form of judgment for sin has to come. Right? And while the people of Noah's day had judgment come in the form of a flood, the Apostle Peter tells us that a greater judgment is still to come for our world. I've got it on the screen for us. It comes in a total and complete sense. That was Genesis 17. 2 Peter 3, 5-7 But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is thousands of years later after Noah, right? Peter the Apostle who walked with Jesus, he's writing about a judgment that's to come that's not just of water, but of fire. See, God gives us a serious warning through this initial story of the flood in Genesis 6. Judgment is coming, though, in an even greater sense, for all the heavens and the earth. Those who are living lives that reject God and living sinful lives, destruction is coming. And you see, while our world says God is bad and evil or an arrogant, snobby brat to do something like this, the Bible shows us that God does it because He's good and just and loving. He's a Father who can't stand evil. Judgment has to come. Evil can't go unchecked. And so people have misunderstood if they think God is like Thanos or some other evil dictator. And see, the same hope as well, the same grace of God, that character of God who makes a promise to Noah, who rescues him and his family, that same God, that same grace has been lavished on all of us here today. Has been lavished on you and lavished on me. Because Jesus is that remedy to sin and judgment. What we deserve. That judgment for sin is what we deserve. But God's provided the solution to our faith, hasn't he? Judgment for sin is what we deserve, but Jesus bore that judgment for us. You see, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, in his divinity and his humanity, he came and died on behalf of us. He went to the cross, died an undeserving, humiliating death, was raised from the dead to conquer and defeat sin itself, so that you and I would wouldn't have to face the wrath and judgment of God ourselves. It's been taken care of. Jesus was the greatest sacrifice. God did that for you and for me. God did that because of his love for his creation. He did that for his own glory, for us to know that we aren't doomed. We haven't yet been abandoned. But we have a God who loves and cares for us, who's, who's intimate and, and, and caring, saves us because we can't save ourselves. 
You see, while other religions and faiths and other worldviews can only trust in our, in our good works and just have a bit of hope that God will show mercy, what we have is this assurance. You see, we have a solid hope because Jesus shows us that he's taken care of it fully and completely with his own life. Friends, we need Jesus. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus' perfect life can be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We need Jesus. We don't need an ark or a giant boat to rescue us. We need Jesus. Noah showed us that he put his faith in God's warning. He put his faith in, in God's promise and God's grace. Will we put our faith in God's rescue plan seen in Jesus? We can't rely on our own goodness. We need his sinless righteousness. We need Jesus' holiness on our behalf. Some of us in the room, they know this, you guys know this. Some of us here, many of us here identify as Christians. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, does our life reflect that truth? That we belong to Jesus. Like Noah, if we truly have put our faith in Jesus, if we know we're saved by God, our lives should look like lives of obedience. Our lives should look like lives that want to love God, love our neighbours, forgive our enemies, show generosity to the poor, live for God, not ourselves or our sin. And throughout the whole three chapters, we don't even hear Noah speak. He just obeys. But we hear God speaking. We need to put our faith in the God who speaks to us. I know this is hard. I know sometimes living this out is hard. It's not easy. It will cost you. It will be hard. There will be sacrifices you make. Hard decisions for Jesus that you'll have to make, but worth it. Because you and I know the great sacrifice of Jesus for us. You see, this is what the faith and response to grace looks like. God has rescued you in Jesus from a greater judgment to come. So how does that change the way you live in response to a good God who is worthy of it? The flood narrative reveals to us that God is patient but just. And judgment for sin has to come. It can't go unanswered. We can't have a God who just lets injustice go without raising an eyebrow. He has to do something about it. And he has in Jesus. Some of us have to figure out what obedience and faith looks like, but others here really just need to make some real life decisions. Will you put your faith in Jesus who has saved you from your sin? Will you start living life in response to God's grace to you and choose to follow Jesus? I know a lot of people would rather take their chances. They've said that to me. I get it if they don't believe in a God who has created or a God who cares and loves. I get that. But it is worth questioning, isn't it? Or at least considering, what are you missing out on with a loving, life-giving God? What are you choosing instead if God is real and the flood was the judgment of God? For me, I'd, I'd take my chances on God, wouldn't I? That's how I, like, what I've chosen. But that's something that you guys need to figure out. If you're here in the room and you're trying to figure out what does faith look like, what, is it, what does believing in God even look like, is this judgment even real? Real questions we need to ask ourselves. And I want to invite you to actually keep asking them. Keep talking about it. Come chat to any of us, any of the guys that are on stage. Let's, we want to help you understand that this judgment is real, that God is real, that we have to make some life choices here. If you get on Google and you search Noah's Ark in Google, one of the top news articles that, that will come up when I typed in was this one. Noah's Ark theme park opens in Kentucky with life-size model, right? Um, you'll read about this replica built in the US by an Australian guy called Ken Ham. It's a giant wooden structure, 155 meters long, costs over $133 million. 
right? It's in the middle of the desert. They designed like a, a museum theme park where you go in, you see rows of cages with model animals and even dinosaurs in there. There's a petting zoo, there are animal shows, zip lines, live entertainment, and a 1,500 seat restaurant. And if you want to go in, it costs 40 bucks. Now, let me just say before I go any further, I know you guys are laughing about this, because <laughs> it is funny. But um, before I go any further, there's a, there's a better way to spend our money for, for one, a um, better way to spend 133 million. But I get it, I get that this is their way of wanting to tell people about God. Sure, I get that. I get that they might not uh, agree with modern day science even and want to teach something through this attractional feature. Sure. But I can't help but agree with one of the actual protesters outside this theme park that had a sign that read this. A taxpayer funded flood of ignorance. What a disaster. And it sure looks like that, doesn't it? Because if you're building a theme park with entertainment and food, you're missing the whole point, aren't you? It's not about the art. It's not about the animals. It's not about Noah, even. The flood narrative is about a God who judges. About a God who loves and saves us from judgment through his son, Jesus. And while they're spending money to build something like this, the same goes for us. What are we building in our lives that one day will just pass away, will fade away? What are we putting our hopes and dreams and faith in, in ourselves? In this short, temporary life? You see, the great flood in human history was a devastating event. There's an even greater flood to come. You and I, we need God. We need to put our faith in the one who rescues us from sin and judgment. Friends, we need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know the sin in our hearts. You know that we need forgiveness, that we need your forgiveness and your grace. Lord, we're thankful that in your word we can read about that. We can know you. We can know the good grace and love that comes from your hand. And we know it because we've seen it in history. We've seen Jesus come into our world, die on a Roman cross and be raised again so that we could have life, so that we could have a relationship with you as our God, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That's the greatest gift of all. So we pray, Lord, that as we go through this life, this short life, that we'll make, ask ourselves some real questions. What does it mean if this is true? What does it mean if God is true? If you are real and, and Jesus has saved us, will we live for you? Help us, Lord, by your spirit to do that. Not only ask questions, but to actually live it out, to respond to you in obedience like Noah did in our lives today. Help us to live out a Christ-centeredness, a, a, a love for you and for others in our world around us. Help us to be the people you want us to be. In your son's name, amen.